Welcome to From Earning to Learning, the podcast where we talk about all things education. I'm your host, Dave Franjosen. All right, so I am very excited to have my next guest with me. He is an ELA teacher from Washington, a consultant, a blogger. He's probably written uh, my favorite blog post ever, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But Mr. Tyler Rablin, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. So um, before we get to the the blog post, you're from Washington State, and there are a lot of great voices in grade reform. What's going on out in Washington that's leading to so many teachers uh, moving in this direction? Is there is it anything like different than's going on in the rest of the country or? I mean, I honestly think a lot of it is sort of a snowball effect where you'll get a couple voices talking and it catches a few people's attention and, you know, their network is local and that all of a sudden reaches further and further. And so, I, you know, I, I think part of it is there's Washington has a decent amount of, well, a decent amount of freedom on the teacher end, um, but also just you know, like you were saying, there's, there's a good amount of voices coming out of Washington right now. And I think it's just snowballing and people are bouncing ideas off each other. And it's, you know, I think it's a testament of what happens when teachers get informal spaces to collaborate, which I feel like for me, that's been like the beauty of Twitter is a lot of those voices in Washington, I've been able to listen to and connect with and bounce ideas off of. And I I really think that's a big piece of what's going on. Yeah, that's awesome. So I've, I've gotten to connect with a bunch of them and and now with you. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit more about your story. So what led you away from traditional grades? Yeah, for me, um, I, I mean, it started and I, I feel like I've most of the time, like your first couple of years of teaching just go by in a blur and you can't remember anything. And like I, the, one of the few moments I can still remember is it was my second year of teaching. We like didn't do digital grades or whatever. So like I had my actual physical grade book, was walking it down to the office. And it, like, I just had such a clear moment. And it was the first time that I had really clearly seen the issue with, with how I was grading. Like I just had this moment looking down at my grade book and going like, this doesn't tell me anything. Like I have, if I were to give this to next year's teacher for whatever student, like they'd look at it and have no idea what the student needs, what, you know, what they're learning, where they're at in that, that learning progression. And um, it was just that, you know, that moment of, of having to sort of confront the reality of what I think I'm doing, what I want to be doing, I'm not doing right now. You know, if I'm trying to communicate learning to students and as the teacher, I can't look at my record keeping and have any idea of what they need to learn next, like something is absolutely off. So, I mean, it all honestly just started from there of, of recognizing that I, I knew what I wanted. Like I wanted kids to feel in control and empowered with, with their data, with their learning. Um, and I wanted to be able to see it and see the story of that learning as I was doing my record keeping. And I, I couldn't. And so that was kind of the, the moment that I decided, you know, there's got, I don't know it, but there's gotta be a better way out there. Yeah. So I I guess that'll, that'll bring up the blog post right now. So my favorite blog post of yours, um, you know, you're getting them ready for the workforce, right? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I I love that post. So, um, yeah, my wife was, was listening to me read that. I was laughing through the whole thing at the absurdity of it. You know, uh-huh. uh, so like what was going through your head when you wrote that? And for anybody who hasn't read that, you 
you have to read it. <laughs> so that that was, I mean, I a lot of times the, you know, I don't, I don't want to throw, I don't want to say this is like other teachers. Like, so I'll say for me, when I first started teaching and really first started grading, like I viewed it as these were measures to control and manipulate the things that I wanted to happen in my classroom. And so like, I will name that I was absolutely there and, and the justification for some of the things that I did as a new teacher were a, this is how it happened to me when I was in school, but B, you know, like I was thinking I need, I'm preparing them for the workforce. And, you know, I think a lot of times that's the pushback you hear to any sort of grading reform or new thinking around grading where it's focused more on grace than it is on control and compliance. A lot of people say, well, that's not how it's going to be when they get in the real world. So that blog post was just sort of like sometimes when, you know, you, you just hit a spot where you're like, I don't know if I can explain through this in a way that's going to, you know, open someone's mind. And so I just thought like, you know, let's just have some fun with it. What would it really look like if I was going above and beyond trying to prepare them for this fictional workplace that is way harsher than any workplace I've ever worked in. <laughs> well, I, the point was made though, you know, so <laughs> like it, it was, I, I think you had to exaggerate to, to kind of prove the point because as you're reading and I was the same as you, I, I did those things. I, I made those justifications. Um, you know, so reading it, um, yeah, I, I, I really loved it. Um, so, you know, I guess that brings me to my next point is you're, you're going through this now, right? So every it's constantly an adjustment. All right. So what challenges are you seeing as you're trying to make an assessment model that, you know, both serves students and, you know, not necessarily prepares them for what's next, but like, you know, hits the, the learning targets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, the, the biggest challenge that I, I run into, and I think that, that most teachers, when they start attempting to reform their grading practices and, and make them better for kids. The, the biggest challenge will always be working within a system that doesn't operate the same way. Um, and, and that's been the hard part for me. A lot of times the question I hear really regularly from teachers when I'm talking about, you know, record keeping and not averaging scores over time to calculate the final grade is, well, what does it look like in the actual grade book? You know, like the online grade book that we have an obligation to post in, um, and for me, like helping or, or coming around on that challenge and really what helped me think through it was recognizing that there are certain stakeholders for which that is valuable, like being able to have academic supports kick in when kids need them. Um, there does need to be something in the online gradebook, but being able to say, this is the purpose of that online gradebook. You know, it's really to communicate with, with, uh, with guardians, to communicate with um, the, the student support at home. So what do they need to know? And then, you know, on the other side, the, the school system, the administrators, what do they need to know? And what I found is, you know, that what do they need to know is a lot smaller than I was pushing myself to try to put in the grade book. I didn't have to put all those things because if I met those needs of, you know, being able to get support systems for kids when they need it and making sure that whoever is at home is able to support the student the way they need to, um, that was a small amount of stuff. And then it freed me up to say, okay, now this other data that's more meaningful, how can I use this for the student in a way that's going to be a little bit better for them? So I think, you know, that's the, the, one of the biggest challenges that 
that I've experienced, and I think a lot of people experience is when you're working within a system that says, you know, a lot of times it's, you have to have one grade posted every week, at least I've heard horror stories uh, mm -hmm. of what else, you know, is required every week. But, you know, there are obligations that sometimes can make grade reform and best grading practices a little bit tricky. But stepping back and saying, okay, what really needs to happen here? Um, I think as teachers, we're really good about putting way too many obligations on ourselves because we want to do everything perfectly, but being able to step back and say, this thing, what's the minimum? You know, like if I, if this is an obligation, what is the minimum that needs to be met for things to flow smoothly? Once I've met that, now I can focus on what I need to focus on. So what are some things that you do to, to kind of navigate that and bridge both systems? So what I've started this year is, um, so, and actually last year was rough across the board, but there were a few things that were really helpful. And one of them that was really helpful for me is recognizing a flaw in my system was um, keeping parents up to date with the things that they can really support. And so, you know, simple things like for, for big tasks that I need students to do, you know, maybe I don't put the actual score in there, but what I do now is the, that assignment goes in as collected or missing. Because really what's what I need, the you know, the way I can work best with support at home is not necessarily I need you to teach the student this content and raise their score on the assessment. But, you know, hey, let's work together. If there's something missing, the student goes home like you can it, that at least is clear communication. Hey, this is what you know, it looks like you're missing this. Can you do this? So that's one of the things that I've found really valuable. Um, I started it last year and I'm doing it much more consistently this year is is recognizing that. A lot, and and really, I learned it from when we sit down at parent-teacher conferences. I listen to the questions the parents are asking: Are is all their work done? How are they behaving in class? Um, and and thinking through, like you know, that shouldn't be the only time that parents are hearing that. So how can I communicate that clearly? And so even something as simple as we had two assignments this week; they're in the gradebook as collected or missing. You know, if the student performed poorly on it, that's not going to impact their grade right now, but it does communicate clearly, hey, it's done or it's not done. We need to we need to get this done. And um, the other thing that kind of along with that, the posting a grade every week, um, I struggle with that a lot. Just I use a five point scale and mathematically, you know, if a student's growing and learning and they're at a two, I hate putting a two out of five in the grade book because I'm telling the kid in class, like, hey, you're doing great. You're growing. You're progressing. This is awesome. And then they go log into the online grade book and they're like, I have a 40 percent and that doesn't feel awesome. So um, I've started using for for sort of the, that progress score. I'm using a lot more of student self-evaluation um, and, and there's every other week we'll do an academic behavior self-reflection where students, you know, I think the misconception with grading reform is we don't care about how students act. We don't care about teaching these skills. But, um, you know, I think the opposite is true is I'm not slapping a late penalty on an assignment and sending it off, assuming that message got learned. We're reflecting every Friday on how did we do, you know, where did we start? Where did we finish? And and we do the same thing with academic progress. You know, I, they'll get their their scores, their feedback every couple of weeks. They'll, they'll sit down and look at it and say, you know, it's not how do you measure up to your peers, but that weekly score is where did you start and are you seeing growth? Give yourself a score for that. And so um, during a unit, that's what my gradebook really looks like online. It's, you know, major tasks collected or missing, progress scores, student self-evaluations. And then at the end of the unit is where 
Um, I'll take those scores and those objectives that we're really focusing on. And that's where they'll see sort of for the for the first time in the online grade book, those scores will really count and they'll see those in there. So you're required to put in a, a letter or a number grade weekly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's right. I have a much different situation. I know I'm very fortunate. We do semesters and my administration's very uh, progressive to where they let me just put in the grade at the mid-year and it's still just a progress report and they let me override it for the final. So, nice. um, yeah, I go a whole semester without actually having to do that translation, which it, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, so, it does. And, you know, especially even still with, with how the grades are going in, it's, it's incredible. The instant I put a score in and it's, it's a student self-reflection, like, immediately it's like how do i get my grade up what do i need to do and i'm like well hey that was your like you gave yourself that grade like i didn't i don't i didn't do anything there um but just working within a context where kids you know and, and this is why every time i hear about whole systems or whole schools or whole districts that have embraced a new grading philosophy i get super jealous because it's when you are sort of the and i'm not a lone wolf i've got some fantastic colleagues that i get to work with in my building but when you kind of feel like the lone wolf or the system isn't coming around you um it's tough to get kids on board with it and it's tough to get families on board with it and um so that that's you know i i'm, I'm a little jealous i guess is where i'm <laughs> going because even still putting as meaningful of a grade as i can in once a week students see that grade and they kick right back into that sort of reactionary fight flight and freeze mode sure absolutely and that was one of the things that really helped me is when because uh we use canvas as our learning management system and in there up until maybe about like two uh two or three years ago you had to have a number on the rubric and they let you hide it uh, now. Nice. and so yeah so now it's just descriptors um, so what we've done is we've actually, uh, and we're going to get to learning progressions in a minute. And that's, uh, I told you off air, that's kind of what really drew me to you is, um, I saw a lot of similar thinking to, to what I do. And I wanted to pick your brain on how you got there because we're in worlds that most people think are two very different worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but they're really not. Um, so uh, what we do is we have our learning progressions, but we only reveal what our targeted level of development is at that point in time. Ooh. So, you know, if, if we're only focusing on getting to the developing level, which I guess on your scale would be a two, mm -hmm. right? We mm -hmm. don't show anything three or higher. And so, you know, now it's like, okay, great. You know, it's a two. That's what, that's where you should be, you know? So it, it, I guess it would be like a two out of two instead of a two out of five. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At, at that point in time, you know, and so like even just like switching to that mode, like doing away with numbers altogether and, and the descriptors, we're doing the same exact thing, but the way it's received was completely different. There were fewer questions because I, I didn't get, well, you know, that's a, that's a, a 40 or that's, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, Maybe that might be a suggestion is if I, I don't know if you're focusing because it's a progression, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking to get to five by the end of the year, right? 
Mm-hmm. So if you're targeting level two, make it a two out of two instead of a two out of five. Yeah. And that's, that was, uh, cause that's always been a struggle for me. Like, you know, whatever, whatever however it's laid out, kid, it, it was hard for me to really communicate to a student. You're, sure. When they see the end goal is way over on this oh, side yeah. and they're here, their brain still goes. So I, I do like that idea. I, I have started, I used to do mastery checks that were all five levels. And I just mm-hmm. told students like, get to a point where you, uh, like if you get to a point where your confidence level is really, really low on like, that's, that's where you stop there, like attempt up to a point that you feel like I, I have a shot at this when you get stuck. Don't, but even then they're still seeing like, Oh, I can't do that. You know, like I can't quite get sure. there. So I've, I have broken my mastery checks into level one and two, which I know we'll talk about learning progressions in a second is usually like background, basic understanding of concepts and then three, four and five. So they are a little bit separated. So at least, you know, when they're working on those intro levels, it's not, oh, so maybe someday I'll get to level five. It's like, no, this is where we're at. This is good. This is what you're learning. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's awesome. Like, the learning progressions, I, I've read through yours and they're fantastic. So what drove you in that direction? Um, the, the big thing for me was, so I, I used, I was very, very focused on rubrics um, and, and I was using them across the board. And by that, I mean, I was using on the evaluation end and also attempting to use them on the guiding learning end. Um, and it's super helpful for evaluation. Like, I don't want to skip over that as, you know, in terms of if you're working with a big team, like our English team, I think we've got nine freshman English teachers uh, this year. And it is super helpful to have a rubric for calibrating the teacher side. But when I was bringing it to students and saying, hey, let's, you know, use this to guide your learning and, and reflect on your growth, the way that I was setting up rubrics so often was like, well, at the left side of the rubric, I suck. And at the right side of the rubric, I don't. And that just, it wasn't doing what I was hoping it was going to do for students of helping them say, here's where I'm at. Here's my next step. Cause even, you know, something as simple as using commas in coordinate or using commas with coordinating conjunction, something like that. It would be like, I make lots of mistakes or I make no mistakes. And as a student, I'm sitting there going, I don't know how to get to, I make no mistakes. Like I just, it didn't guide their thinking. It didn't guide their learning. So that was the big thing that really made me think about is the rubric doing what I want? And I kind of had to step back and, and, and think, okay, if I was in a student's shoes, like if I was trying to learn a concept, what would I need to know? And that's where, you know, the progression idea came around and it really came around. I saw it a lot at a macro level where if you look at common core state standards, they'll say, here's the progression K-12, but it's just huge and big picture. And I wanted to think about what did that, what would that look like at a, on a small scale for a student? Um, really just walking them through if, if this is the goal, you know, let's say we're going to be able to analyze theme in a text. Um, if that's the goal, where do we, where are we starting? Like I I call them access points. Like what are all the access points on the way to that learning and going all the way back to, does the student understand what conflict is in a story? Um, And really thinking about, am I highlighting for students if I don't understand it, why? Um, And that's what I felt like I was not great at in writing rubrics. When I was evaluating, I was good at saying, 
here's the level of, of quality that I'm seeing, but not necessarily here's why and here's your next step. So uh, we have AJ Bianco joining us in the chat. And um, this is a great question and, and one that a lot of people ask. What is the difference between a rubric and a learning progression? Um, I mean, on the surface, they are very similar. Like it's a it's a level of understanding of a certain concept. But the way that I think about it, a rubric hinges around one uh, level of proficiency. And, and the way that I, to explain it, let's go back to the, um, let's say theme, uh, to use that example again. You know, your proficient level might be, I can analyze the development of a theme in the text. You know, that's, that's the level that the whole rubric hinges around because above that is basically, I can do this really, really well. And then below it is, is I can do this one thing incompletely. I can barely do this one thing, but it all hinges around being able to access that one bit of learning. And that's the only way to see success on that rubric. Um, and those are really good for, like I said, for evaluating and having a standard of quality as a frame of reference as an educator. Um, they're, they're very task focused. Like there, it's an isolated performance and you're evaluating how how well someone performed on that one task. The learning progression for me is each different step along the way is really a separate, I don't, I don't want to say a separate hinge, but that doesn't make any sense because that, that nothing would work that way. But rung on a ladder? Yeah, there a separate rung on a ladder where, you know, it, it's it's answering the question of if I can do X, what do I what's the next step? So, you know, the theme example again, you do have theme up here. I can analyze the development of theme in a text, but you go all the way back to the beginning to say, I can I can explain what conflict and plot structure are in a story. Because if a student can't do that, they won't be able to really move up and, and say, well, what was the character's conflict? How did that lead to the theme? So it's it's sort of unpacking, this is what I want them to do. And then working all the way back to where should they start? And the, the value for me in having these learning progressions is a lot of the things that show up in the earlier stages of these progressions are assumptions that I used to make as a teacher of they were supposed to have already learned this. So I'm not even going to put that on there. And like, we know that in any year, no kids aren't coming to us knowing everything that they were supposed to have learned in previous grades. And it's really nice for the student that has that as a, a, a gap in their understanding. Now there's an access point for them. Like they missed out on what conflict is. I'm not going to assume they know it and move past. There's a spot for them to say, oh, that's something I need to pay attention to. It's a prerequisite to being able to analyze theme in a text. So the, the learning progressions really go from what is the background knowledge that needs to be in place for us to build on? Do they understand the terms and concepts? And then really moving, if you think about it in terms of like Bloom, moving into some of those deeper levels, but still really focusing on, you know, it's not, I can do this sort of well, I can do it really well, but what do I need to learn next? What's the concept that's going to lead me to that next level? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. And uh, the way that I view it is just the uh, application. It, it's the same structure. And, you know, the, the rubric is evaluative and a lot of times they're very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the things that must be met like check boxes. Well, I did all these things where the learning progression is taking somebody from being a novice to an expert. 
what discrete steps do they need to take? And mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's my view of the learning progression. And, um, for me that it's more skill-based where, you know, your rubrics are a little more content heavy, mm-hmm. you know? And so, uh, I mean, at least in the sciences, it's like you, you knew this very well and like you were saying, so, um, and that's kind of how I distinguish between the two. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it has been nice to see how students receive them, but I will say on like for me on the educator side of things, it has forced me to do a lot deeper thinking about some of the stuff that I've been teaching because, you know, if, if I'm just teaching theme, okay, I just teach theme and we figure out how to analyze theme versus no, no, no. Theme is a series of concepts that are in place and they need, if they understand this and this and this, then they can really do a good job. And so, you know, I, I had been in like previous positions, I had been asked to just unpack the standard. And I was like, why? Like, why? What do we, we now took this paragraph and turned it into bullet points and yippee. Um, But really thinking about it in terms of how am I taking this end goal, which really is what a standard is. It's, this is where we're going to get to at the end and thinking about how am I unpacking that to say, well, here's where we're going to start so that every kid can see different ways that they can access that, that standard. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point is making sure every student has an on-ramp, you mm-hmm. know? So, uh, there's too many students that get left behind when you assume that there's certain things that they know and can do. And, you know, we're seeing that now with learning loss because we can't mask, you know, those traditional deficiencies with extra help and, you know, with all those other tricks that we had to mask it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, that's their justification for, for other things. Um, so now we're into what people consider totally different arenas. How, how do you see the overlap? Because, you know, what you're doing is very similar to what I'm doing in science. I actually use portfolios to assess my students, which I'm told, well, that's an English teacher thing, you know? So like (laughs) they're, how do you see the overlap between uh, content areas? Yeah. So the, the, and I don't, it something that always just for some reason got under my skin and I couldn't understand why, when we were talking about, you know, ELA classes and things like that is so many people say, well, English class isn't linear. Math is linear. You know, like the, the there was this, conception that like in right in English, like we just write and we just keep doing it and we just keep doing the same thing over and over and we just hope it gets better. You know, and like there is when you write, when you read, the more you do it, the better you get. But there still is, I mean, there still is a progression to learning to do something. Like I can't talk to a student about the fact that they have a fragment in their writing if we've never talked about subjects and verbs. Like they're they're just in almost everything that you learn it's, you know, it's not a hundred percent linear and we can't say clearly students move from A and all students move to B, all st- but there is a way to say the way that the brain works, like we need background content knowledge to be in place in order to really start thinking about things that build off of that. So like for me, that's been a, I was an instructional coach for uh, four years this is my first year back in the classroom full time and I loved it, but I was really intimidated at first going into an instructional coaching role because I was like, well, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know the content. I'm not an expert. I'm in, I, I know my content well, but really being able to step back and say like, learning is learning. 
Like there, there are rules for learning that in any classroom are helpful to have in place and, and, you know, can be, can be built into a curriculum, can be built into units and things like that. Yeah. So I, I refer to those as transferable skills and, you know, I use my content as a vehicle to teach those transferable skills. So we have a follow-up question from AJ and I think it's a great one. So, um, you know, where should students be when it comes to these progressions and what are the expectations for students? I mean, my goal is what's set at proficiency is what every student can reach by the end of the year. Like the reality of that happening might not always be the case. And, you know, honestly, at the secondary level, especially, there are some things that as a teacher, I think are important or as a system, we think are important that if a kid doesn't, get to a certain level of proficiency with it, it might not be the end of the world and it might be totally okay. I think in a perfect world, I mean, this is where secondary needs to definitely take a note from, from elementary or from primary grades. Like in a perfect world, I would love to loop with my kids so that we could truly say like at the end of the year, you don't have to get to proficiency now, but next year I know exactly where you're at and we're just picking up there. You know, like that's my, my dream, but because we're in this sort of time bound system, there's, you know, there's all these rules of, well, they leave here. What do we expect them to leave with, even though they're going to be just down the hall and we could pick up with them and keep learning there. So, you know, I would say that the goal is proficiency, but it's flexible. I yeah. Well, kids, no, kids I, kids. I agree with that hundred percent. And, you know, I think uh, we do need to meet students where they are. Mm -hmm. Right. And that you're talking about those access points for every student. So the expectation of where should they be entering, you know, they should enter wherever they are and our goal is proficiency or, you know, it depends on the class too. So, um, the way we designed our learning progressions, um, I teach bio and physics. So mm -hmm. I teach freshmen and juniors. So we actually design them. So, um, by the end of freshman year, I can get them to proficient. You know, and then if I see them again, I can push them towards advanced and expert, you know, so uh, yeah, yeah. We, we have that in mind. And so for us, depending on, um, you know, what year they're in, what background information they're coming in with, that determines what our expectation is for the end of the year. How much practice are we providing? Like, you know, so in the COVID years, you know, at, at the end of 2020 and all of last school year, we didn't have enough time to do all the practice that we would traditionally do. So our expectation of where we could end up based on the practice we were providing had to be lowered. So, you know, and, and that's one of the beauties of a learning progression is they are so flexible, right? Because you do have those access points for all students and it's discrete steps. We're not going from, you know, a level one to a level five or from beginning to expert. We're just going one incremental step at a time. So, you know, um, I, I know that's not a concrete answer to this question, but um, the expectation is that students improve. Mm -hmm. However much that Im improvement is, is based on how much practice, how much time we have um, to, to give that feedback and let them try and practice again. All right. And so um, the, the question was asked because, you know, in schools, you're given a framework um, with the rubric of, you know, perfect this rubric, perfect score, you know, and 
But really, how many times have we seen students with a perfect rubric that walk away with little learning? <laughs> yeah, they're good at the game. Like they've learned how to play the game and they're good at it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, and and that's really what we're trying to, um, that's what we're trying to move away from is mm -hmm. really shift the focus to true learning and skills that, you know, we didn't just expose them to, like they're, they're taking it with them. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, in order to do this, this is the elephant in the room feedback, mm -hmm. right? So, um, it, it can be overwhelming, right? If you don't have systems to manage feedback. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest deterrents for people who are looking to move this way is first off, how do I provide high quality feedback that can move students to those discrete levels? And then how do I manage that? So mm -hmm. do you have any tips um, in both of those areas? How do you provide that feedback? And then how do you manage? I actually saw that you had uh, a post today uh, on this. So uh, I know you're ready to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a, a couple of things that have been really helpful for me. The, the one, you know, kind of, I, I think about it in terms of, do I have a feedback system? So what I mean by that is ELA teacher, I was so used to like, digital or not, there were just stacks and stacks of papers that I had to give feedback on and I would give feedback, the students would take it, read it. And then that would become an isolated bit of data. Like that assignment would go somewhere separate from the last assignment with feedback and from the other assignment with feedback. And so one of the pieces that I started being really intentional with is when students are receiving feedback, that it goes in a, a place that is collecting all of that feedback. One of the biggest things for me with how I have students reflect is I ask them to be looking for trends and the way that I was giving feedback, they couldn't unless, you know, they spent their whole day going through all their old assignments and trying to notice trends. So instead it's, I mean, it's nothing fancy. It's a table where it like, it's got glows and grows. Like I have them identify, like reflect what went well, what, what feedback did you get looking at, um, you know, some of the feedback you got, what, what do we need to improve on? And, and the other benefit to that that I love is most of the time throughout the year, the things that were in their grows, like, hey, these are things to improve on. As they start getting more feedback, doing more assignments, they're starting to see some of that move over into glows where it's now things they can celebrate. And before there was no way they would have ever seen that. But because it's all in one place, they get to like actually log in, open that assignment, record their feedback and go like, Hey, at the beginning of the year, this thing that I was working on that you said I needed to improve, like this is something I just recorded as a success for me. And, and they get to see that and it's all in one place. So that's been one of the most helpful things for me with feedback. Now, the downside is it, it doesn't decrease the amount of time we spend giving feedback. So on that side of things, like I, putting in work ahead of time before you leave feedback can save so much time in the long run. So like we talked about those learning progressions and I've started building them out a little bit more so that there there's hyperlinks and resources at each level so that, you know, I can really sit down with a student and say, Hey, right now, after seeing what you're doing, like, I think you're at, at this level, go in, like watch a couple videos for that next level and see if you can figure out where to go next. And, you know, doing that saves me, I would have had to write out all those comments or things like that, but having it built ahead of time and then building in intentional time for them to reflect on that feedback and go access those resources. 
I mean, that's really like the, the term I love in feedback research is advisement. Like it's really saying, hey, here's where you're at. Let's figure out where to go next. It's not, here's your mistake, here's your mistake. And being able to say, really, if I can sit down and say, here's where you're at, and there's already resources or something built that they can say, oh, I'm going to go here and figure out where to go next. I mean, that saves me a ton of time that I used to spend writing out all of those comments before. Um, and the other thing with that, so I love any sort of text expander. Google Classroom has one built in. I'm sure there's tons out there. I use one called A-Text. Um, but the, the idea behind it is, and I think it's from like the soft, uh, software world. Like that's my dad was a coder and all this stuff. And when I was describing like, I just hate writing the same things over and over and over. And one day, one day he was just like, why don't you use a text expander? Like we use them all the time. And so I looked into it and it's, I mean, now I build like a three letter shortcut and I can populate as much text as I want. Um, and it's not just text, but it's links. It's if I wanted to do a follow-up assessment. So um, like the, my my debate class was getting some feedback today and we were focusing on structure and I knew the three things that my class was really struggling with for structure. And so I built three comments that had a full explanation, video resources, uh, and just like additional learning built into it. And that part took a little bit of time, but I, now I have it, it's ready to go. And so while I was going through their work, I could put in three letters in pops a whole comment, video resources, everything, I'm done, I can move on. And the student now has that advisement to say, this is a trend I'm noticing, here are your resources, move, you know, let's move forward from here. So those are the, I guess, the two things that have helped save me time without decreasing the, the value and the quality of the feedback I was giving to students. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, a, a couple of things that, I mean, I do, and this is something that you have to practice because receiving feedback, right? If we're not modeling that, if we're not giving them time to practice and, and showing them what to do with the feedback, I mean, it's all for naught anyway, like mm -hmm. you're just kind of wasting time. So, you know, that's part of that front loaded effort is, you know, kind of showing them this is what to expect and this is what you do with it. Um, and I, so you're doing that with your, your links and your videos. And so one of the things that I do is I kind of limit what we're providing feedback on. So rather for us, we do a lot of lab reports and, you know, so for this one, we're just going to work on our conclusions, right? So that's what you're going to write up the whole thing and practice everything, but we're really going to focus on making the conclusion good. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we'll, we'll go back and we'll, on the next one, we'll look at our, um, our experimental design and then we'll look at data analysis. So, you know, you don't have to provide feedback on everything. And sometimes it's not good to provide feedback on everything. It's too overwhelming for them. So, you know, peer reviews have also helped a ton. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get students. Now it sounds like the direction you're going is they're going to start asking you for targeted feedback. This mm -hmm. is the thing that I need your help with, you know, and that greatly reduces um, where you're spending your time and you can still give that high quality feedback. So, you know, a lot of great stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. The, I, I love, you mentioned the part about students identifying what they want. And I started doing that. They, they'll leave just a comment at the beginning and it's, you know, it's, it's optional. They don't always have to do it, but, um, at the beginning, I, they get the option to say, um, whether or not they want feedback and, 
sometimes I have to honor it when they say no, like I, they have to explain why. And, and I have kids say like, I didn't feel great about this. Like I, I just, I know I can do it. This just didn't go well. I'd, I'd rather not have feedback and move on. And, you know, part of it, if I want students to truly value the feedback, they should have the right to say like, nope, no feedback this time. But the other thing, and very few students will do that. The other thing is I'll say, what do you want feedback on? You know, like just give them a chance to throw out there like I'm struggling with writing a claim. And now I know they've asked for it. There's more buy in. I'm not just like shoving feedback down their throat, pretending that they want it. And so, you know, that I love that you brought that up. The student being able to say, here's here's what I'm working on. Can you help me with this? Because that's I mean, that's what feedback is. It's I'm trying to help you with this. And they're telling us this is what I want help with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to respect your time. We're we're getting towards the end. So what advice do you have for people who are looking to get into grade reform or, or looking to kind of change their practices? I, if you're on the in the area where you're not sure if you want to even change, um, I would survey your students like I, I do this survey when I work with schools and districts. It, it simply asks three questions. Do grades help you learn? How do grades make you feel? And do teachers give grades? And the responses students give for that are, are really eye-opening. Um, a, a lot of times they understand why teachers want to give grades or why teachers do give grades or, or what it's supposed to be. But when you look at, they understand that's the, the intended impact, but it's not how it plays out in reality. And you see that disconnect and the effect it has on students and their mental health and, and just their view of themselves. Um, that, that is, is just, I mean, when you hear it from kids, it's different than hearing it from some adult trying to tell you how to change your practice. So if you're there, that's what I would really encourage you to do. Um, if you're looking for just a first step in, I really encourage you just start unpacking your standards and building learning progressions. Um, and, and then just start giving those to kids because when they, you know, you'll start, it's grades will still get in the way, but you're going to start seeing the value of, really trying to focus on learning and aligning assessment practices to that learning progression and to the learning we want to see students doing. So, all right. Is there any resources that you would point them to any people that they should follow? Um, you know, where did you get your inspirations from? So, and I, he's got a new book out that I haven't read, but um, Myron Dweck has a book called Grading Smarter, Not Harder. I am always nervous I'm going to flip that, but Grading Smarter, Not Harder. And it was one of the first books. I read a ton of them that were big picture theory focused, but it was one of the first books I read that was a teacher in their classroom, like saying, like, here, this is what my grade book looks like. This is an assessment that I gave students. And that was so helpful for me. I felt like so much of what I was seeing was just here's the end goal, like here's the big picture. And I just needed someone to tell me for Friday's quiz, try this. And I felt like his book did a really good job of, of breaking it down. And he's got another one um, really about like honoring student voice in the assessment process. I have no doubt that would be a really valuable resource too. And then um, that's on the practical side for sort of the, the big picture side, which is really valuable. Um, Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity is fantastic at, at getting at the why behind grading reform. I think so often you see this, like it happens in schools and people say, 
you have to do grading reform. Like we're going to standards-based grading and there's not enough discussion around like why and, and why from the kid perspective, you know, like why from learning, why from the student experience. And that book, I think just absolutely nails that on the head. So um, in terms of people to follow, man, I can't even think of, uh, there's so many. Um, yeah. I will say like Monty Siri, if you don't follow him, I feel like I'm just shouting out Washington educators, which is not <laughs> fair right now. Um, he's great. Um, Nicholas Emmanuel is someone who I really respect for how intentional he is with uh, kind of working with kids. Um, and then Cornelius Minor is fantastic all around, but his work really looking at grading and um, sort of its its relationship to bias and race. Um, he's He's been really impactful for me or profound for me too. So those would be, I guess, three that pop into my head. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm so happy you brought that up because a lot of times we look at the people who are just doing grading and not looking at the people who are doing social justice and equity mm -hmm. work. And, uh, you know, some of those are, uh, a lot of my influences as well. So, um, you know, yeah, great stuff. So how can people get in contact with you? Um, how can they read your blogs? Um, you know, yeah. So, uh, my favorite place to interact with people is on Twitter. Um, so I'm just at Mr. Underscore Rablin on there. And my blog is called teacher totter. Um, just the ups and downs of teaching. And, um, so if you're interested, that's on there. And then my email, if you want to reach out is just Tyler Rablin at Gmail. I got really lucky apparently, and <laughs> nobody else had my name at that point. So, um, those are, if you ever want to get in, in touch or ask questions or just share successes. Those have been my favorite things that I've gotten recently as the beginning of the year has been a little bit stressful and hectic. Uh, it's been really nice to have a couple people have reached out and shared some of their successes. And that is, that's been really encouraging for me. Hey, well, thank you for joining me tonight. I mean, this is such a great conversation. Loved having you on. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I, I love getting to be on here. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your feedback. For more resources, visit www.reimagineschools.com or reach out to me on Twitter at David Franjosa.